Our scripture reading this morning is Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. Again, today is a long passage. And our sermon today is entitled, The Red Sea from Life to Death. This is the reading of the Lord's Word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh, and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with them, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth, in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, 
and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and their sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being the wall to to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. May the Lord bless us in the reading of his word. Before our message today, I just want to say to all of you, once again, welcome to Christ's covenant Presbyterian Church. For those of you who just became members here at this church, praise the Lord. It is the Lord's doing, not ours, that has allowed you to gather in this place. Uh, It is not by anything that we have done, but hopefully it is Christ in us that has attracted you to this fellowship. And we pray that it is Christ that will continue to help us to grow in love and in glory for him. For those of you who are visiting, uh, membership is offered to all of you as well. We believe that this is a very important part in the life of the church. The scriptures command us to be baptized and to, to go to, well, back then the synagogue or back to the places where the church was gathering and to be part of that community, to be loved and to love, to be rebuked and to rebuke, to pursue holiness together, to be able to comfort one another, to be able to really cry tears of sorrow and to lament together over sin and the brokenness of the world. And because of that, we can rejoice together of the greatness of God's love 
of our impending hope in knowing that Christ will return for us. This is what the Lord desires for all of us. So if you are looking for a church and you look around and you say, hey, this might be a place for me, talk to me or one of the elders. And if you want to become a member here, we'll say to you again, are you sure? All other churches out there, are you sure? But the Lord calls you here as you prayerfully consider. We welcome you to join us in this great, great journey with the Lord together. This is only the start. Eternity awaits for all of us. Praise be to God. As we continue on this series on Exodus, sometimes the question comes up, how does a Christian read the Old Testament? How are we to read the Bible in such a way that we as the people of God are blessed? You know, when you read this story of the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea, you can see how many different religious groups and just many different people can sort of take this story and appropriate it for their own experiences, for their own lives. Now, we as Christians, we understand that because that's the nature of literature. That's the nature of, of any narrative, any story, that we can read into it what we want to read into it. But we have to understand that as Christians, people who have been called by God, that there's a priority in how we read the Bible. And this is important for us because many of us have grown up reading the Bible piecemeal or perhaps simply just memorizing Scripture passages. But we have to remember that the Bible has been given to us as a whole. And it's this whole narrative from beginning to the end the story of redemption from creation, the fall, redemption, and eventually Christ coming and his eventual return. That enables us to see that the part of the story fits into the whole. And it's incumbent upon us as Christian people to take almost a priori that Jesus himself is the central character of the Bible. And so when we read Exodus, when we read any part of the Old Testament, or even the New Testament, our thoughts must first go to how does this fit the entire story? And I always come back to Harry Potter because that's what you guys read. You know, imagine if someone came to you and just read one chapter of Harry Potter. And after they read that chapter, they tried to explain to you everything that's happening in the story. You who already read Harry Potter, you would go, oh, silly little person, you. You do not understand Harry Potter. You do not understand what's going on. Your interpretation is interesting, but you do not understand the breadth and the depth of what is going on in this character. Now, that person has every right to do that. We all have the right to do anything we want with whatever passage we have, in a sense. 
But the central thing that we must do to honor the author of Harry Potter books and to honor the author of Scripture is to read it all as a story. So I know that you've heard many, many times that you should do Bible reading and read three chapters a day and, and so forth. And that's wonderful. That's great. My challenge to you is even greater. Do you need a summer book? Do you need a spring break book? Just read the whole Bible from front to, to the end. Don't worry about the chapters. Don't worry about the headings. Just read it as a story. I did this one year in my summer after college, and I would just spend two hours a day just reading the Bible. Just two hours. Just like you read a book, right? Just like you would read a book. Spend two hours just reading. After two hours went off, just put the bookmark in. I, I didn't, I, chapter, verse, who, who knows? Just after two hours, just put the bookmark in and go, wow, that, that was an interesting story so far. And I would just keep reading, keep reading. And by the end of the summer, after I think about a month, I was done reading all of the Bible. And something amazing happens. God is one. The Bible has one central message. And if you read from beginning to end, that central message of Christ and God's love will pop out at you. And then when you do go back and do those Bible studies, when you do go back and read those passages, everything starts to fit of who God is and what he is doing. For those of you who are even more ambitious, I would ask, I would say to you this, get the, 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 um, the, the Jewish-English edition of the Bible, Jewish Publication Society, JPS. Their order of the Old Testament books are a little different. I won't go into why. And you read that from beginning to end. The story is the same, but it's a little, the, 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 because the order of the book, it has a little bit of a different, different twist to it. But the ending of Jesus himself is undeniable who he is and what he has done. And so even though I, I'm here preaching on just one little passage, know that this one passage is part of a great narrative story. Second thing I want to say about this, and this is turning to a lecture, but that's okay. The second thing I want to say about this is that we have to understand that we live in the end times of this great biblical narrative or this great story of redemption. Too often we want to advance the study, the, the, too much we want to advance the story of the Bible outside of its original intent. We've all seen this, right? Those of you who are Star Wars fans, right? There's the canon Star Wars and the stuff they have out nowadays. You're just scratching your head going, what is this? This has nothing to do with the original story. I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but I'm sure if someone wrote something extra canonical, you'd be like, what is this? This is not part of the Harry Potter story. Too often we do the same thing as God's people. We, we look at the Bible and then we want to write something more to the Bible. We want to have our own sort of personal interpretations and, and write something that's, that's akin to the Bible, but a little bit different. 
But I guarantee you, if you read that in light of the Bible, you would say to yourself, what is this? This has nothing to do with the Bible. Remember, the Bible itself, from the beginning to, to the end, to the end of Revelation, it's, it encompasses all of history until Christ. And until Christ comes back, back, from this point to Christ comes back, if this is the beginning of history, and this is where, 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 where Christ lived and came back and the church started, the end of scriptures, we, live, we will live in this much time at the end. That's it. Because all we're waiting for is Christ to come back. How foolish in us is it to, for us to think that we can add anything to the Bible? We must let Scripture speak for itself. For those of you who are seeking the Lord and trying to understand who the Lord is, yes, the, 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 the challenge is, I would say to you just read one of the Gospels to start there because that's the center of the story. My greater challenge to you would be just read the whole Bible. When I was in college, okay, this is, I don't know where I'm going with all this, but when I was in college, one of my friends who was trying to share the gospel with the other friend, um, during the summer, they, they said, let's read each other's books. And this other person was a sociology major. And so he said to him, all right, I have this book by Durkheim called Suicide. Okay, it's, like a th- it's like a really long, it's pretty dense. You read this over the summer and I'll read the Bible. And so they did that. He read Durkheim, but the guy didn't read the Bible. But the guy was impressed that he did read it. The conversation started. My best friend in college was from the Baha'i religion. And man, their, their scriptures are like this deep. I mean, it's just, there's so much to read. But I said to him, listen, you pick 300 pages, I'll read. And here's the Bible, you read it. See the story of creation and redemption in the Bible. And you tell me if it fits the phenomenological world out there, the experiences of humanity. I'll read your Prophet Abab and Abdul Baha'u'llah. I'll read those scriptures. And I'll show you and I'll explore their picture of reality as well. The Bible is true. You who are Christians, you who know Jesus, the goal of all things is to know him. Emory students, I know you're going to hear lots and lots of different things on campus. You're going to have professors who who teach from a very um, literary critical perspective. Even though it's, it, it, it is, it is post-critical right now, but post-critical simply means just read, read whatever you want into it. But even that has been both has been birthed out of this out of this post-literary critical um, mindset today. And I want you to know that everyone has a hermeneutic. Everyone has a place that they start. Where your professors start in their presuppositions about what is truth, what is reality, what is meaning, start with them, it's okay. Read it from their perspective. But at the end, you ask yourself the question, does that really purport with reality? 
Is there congruence do I see in the phenomenological world and in this narrative world they're trying to portray? And secondly, read the Bible according to its own hermeneutic, its own interpretation. And then ask the question, does it purport with the reality that we see today? All right, that's my Bible 101 TLDR lecture, whatever that is. Is that right, TLDR, something like that? Um, if you have more questions on that, uh, please do come and ask me. Um, it's one of the things I'm very, very passionate about, um, hermeneutics and interpretation. So in our passage today, brothers and sisters, um, this will be very, very short, but I hope that the Lord will bless you in this. We see in this story that Pharaoh has finally let the people go, but he doesn't do so out of the kindness of his heart. Remember, every firstborn child has passed away. Every firstborn of their cattle, their animals has passed away. And in, and in dire straits, they're like, just go before we all perish. So they leave. The people of God leave, and they leave in haste. But they leave having plundered the Egyptians because they would say to the Egyptians, hey, that silver and gold, can I have it? And the Egyptians are like, just take anything you want. Just leave and go away. And as they leave, they leave as, as this ragtag bunch of people. They look like refugees. They are people who just left in haste, not prepared with their wheelbarrows, with their disheveled and children in hand, and they're, and they're walking away, and they, they brought as much stuff as they could. These were men, women, children who lived in slavery for almost 500 years. These weren't people who knew how to fight. These weren't people who knew how to battle. These weren't even people who knew how to stand up for themselves. In fact, these people of Israel, we would look at them and we would say, you are a sorry people. You are a sorry bunch of people. You possess nothing. You have nothing. You are simply slaves to a greater power. You are free labor to the Egyptians. But God saw something different because God, the God of promise, looked at them and said, I will call you out of Egypt. You will be my children. You will be as my firstborn son. The promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make you into a great nation, to be a nation where I will be your God and you will be my people. I will keep that promise and I will demonstrate my greatness by how I bring you out of Egypt. And so they come out. And then God does something just unfathomable to most of us. You would think that after coming out of Egypt, they would make a beeline right to Palestine, right to the promised land. But no, God says, you know what, I'm going to let you wander for a while. You're like, oh my goodness. God, what are you doing? What are you doing to your people? How much patience do they have? How much wherewithal will they have? But even as they wandered, God still provided for them, right? A pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to lead them. 
Imagine what that pillar might have looked like. To me, it's probably like a cyclone, right? Just twirling. And everyone's seeing the, the, the theophany, the, the presence of God. And people are still knowing that God was there. But even as they saw God, what did the people of God do? They grumbled. Imagine saying to God, oh, maybe I even shouldn't even say that. How many times have we said to God, God, why did you call me a Christian? My life is just more miserable. God, why do I know who Jesus is? Life is just harder. The people of God were doing the same thing. Why did you bring us out? Let me just be a slave in Egypt. Let me be a slave to sin. Let me just die there in peace. But God in his grace and his mercy had a plan. One is to bring himself glory. Two is to save his people in such a way that they would know that God of glory. So here they are, right? There's the sea before them and the Egyptians behind them. The Egyptians are camping, getting ready to destroy the Israelites. The sea and the people and the Egyptians hemming them in. But God in his grace sends his pillar behind, right? To protect them from the Egyptians and the attack. And here we have this this great picture of the hopelessness of the people of Israel. If we look in the Old Testament, we, we see that the enemies of God is simply, well, it's the enemies. It's, it's a nice, simple picture. Egyptians, those who hate you, those who are opposed to you, those who are out to destroy you, you see face to face. But then in front of you is this water, it's this red sea that is hemming you in. And we know again from Genesis chapter 1 as we go back that the picture of the sea and the picture of waters It's always a picture of chaos, picture of destruction. It's a picture of formlessness. It's a picture of meaninglessness. Remember, you lived in Israel. Let's say you lived in Israel. You look at the Mediterranean Sea, and it's endless. They believe that the waters above them was was held back by a firmament, a, a shell up there. Now, this shell in the sky were to fall, the waters would come rushing down. Water was lifelessness. And so his Israel in this picture of hopelessness. And what does God do? God says to Moses, you will stretch, raise your staff, stretch your arm out your arm, and the sea will part. And God and Moses does so, right? And the people of God hurry through. And as they hurry through, God allows the Egyptians to chase after them. And after Moses, and after the Egyptians have fallen through, Moses again raises his hand, raises his staff, and the waters fall over the Egyptians. And the waters fall over their horsemen and their chariots. And they perish. 
this picture of what God is doing, of God's great power. He's showing you, he's showing me that God, he himself is the one who delivered Israel, that he himself is the one who brought them out from their enemies, from chaos, brought them through the chaos to the other side. And that God himself would not be denied his glory. There's a couple things here that I want to impress upon you. First, in, in here in this passage, it talks about the host of Egyptians versus the host of Israel. Now, you might ask yourself the question, what, what does that word mean, the hosts? The host of Israel, the, the host of the Egyptians. Well, it simply means this, army. Army. You have the army of the Egyptians versus the army of Israel. God is once again impressing upon the people of Israel that you are an army why? Because I am fighting for you. The Egyptians themselves recognize that. We should go and we should leave because the Lord is fighting for Israel. This great picture of the God who fights for his people, who fights for you who are weak, who fights for you who are in your sins. It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of people who are in haste, Picture of people who are grumbling. Picture of people who are sad. People are, picture of people who are hopeless. Picture of people who are confused. And yet God, by his covenant promises, looks upon those people and says, you are my army. You are my military. You are the ones that will defeat the Egyptians. Why? Because I am fighting for you. Brothers and sisters, this picture of a God who does all these things for his people is a picture of our salvation and a picture of our lives with Christ as well. That you yourselves, when you are trying to sort of obey God and follow God and to do things for God, in your weaknesses, in your distress, even in your grumbling, it is God who is always fighting for you, fighting for your salvation, fighting for the perfection of your faith. It is not by works that you have been saved. It's not because of anything in you that's allowed you to be saved by God, but it's by God's sheer grace and sheer mercy that you are saved in the midst of your grumbling, in the midst of your tiredness, in the midst of your confusion, God is there. But not only that, we know that the God who started your salvation is the one who'll be faithful to complete it. Not so much you, but God himself is faithful to his covenant. Yes, we grow in our faith in God. Yes, we grow in our reliance to God. But think about it. In comparison to God's perfection, how close do we actually get? It is not about getting 
perfect as God is, it's really about being perfect as we can and trusting in Jesus and his finished work. For we know that when Jesus comes in glory, that our salvation, our perfect salvation in the end, but that has been given to us by God, sustained for us by God, protected for us by God. Jesus has gone to prepare many rooms for you who know the Lord. Be comforted by this passage. Look at the Israelites. Laugh at them. And then laugh at yourself. Read Exodus 1 through 18. Look at the Israelites. See how silly they are. And then see how silly you are. God himself has always been faithful. Second, God himself will not share his glory with another. This is hard for us to understand unless we read the whole Bible together. Okay. But here in this little piece that we have in Genesis 1 through 18, we have a picture of a God who does everything for his own glory so that all peoples will look at him and him alone. In our world today, when we hear that type of of attitude, we picture a God who is simply selfish. And we appropriate those words to this God of Israel. It's a selfish God. This is a God who's playing around with Pharaoh. This is a God who's playing around with Israel. This God is not a God of love. This God is almost like a, a man-child in what he's doing and what he's accomplishing. And that would be true if any of us here did that. That would be true if any of us here sort of pulled those types of strings. But we have to understand that the God that we see in all of Scripture, the God of creation, the perfect God of justice, the perfect God of mercy, that this God is to use a science term, a singularity. He is not someone who is like any of us. And he does as he does according to his glory, according to his mercy. Well, my argument for you would be very simple. The God that we worship is the God who created you. Look at yourself as human beings, the way God has made you. Look at these things as human beings as you understand issues like justice, mercy, love. Where is that coming from? Out of thin air? Evolution? Surely not. Look at the animal kingdom. Desire for relationships? Where's that coming from? 
Bible says it's coming from the God who made you in his image. Nowhere else. And what God is demonstrating here for you and I to understand is that in God's perfection, he's a God of both justice and mercy. And for us as God's people to understand the the extent of how much justice he demands and the same hand, how much mercy he can give, he shows the people of God and the people of Israel that death itself is the penalty of sin, the penalty of rebellion against God himself. And when we understand the depths of that, even if you yourselves, as, as people who have not, maybe you don't know, you're, you're not jiving with this whole Christianity thing, but even your sense of saying, this is totally unjust what God is doing, I would ask the question, where do you get that sense of injustice? God himself knows what he's doing. And God must make it clear to everyone that he is the arbiter of all things. He will not share his glory with another. There is no other supreme court. There is no other king. There is no one else to appeal to but God himself. And so he does what he does to show who he is. This great story of the Red Sea, this parting of the Red Sea, the the Christians pick up on this because they see that the story of redemption is continuing to develop. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul himself realizes and understands this picture of crossing the Red Sea. It's a picture of, as we had today, it's a picture of baptism. It's a picture of death unto life. Remember, the the Israelites were were trapped. They had their enemies behind them and the wall of of chaos before them. And and God parts them. They're able to travel through. And what's beautiful about this is it's the same picture. It's that that the, the Israelites themselves were united to Moses. And if they looked to Moses, they, could, they would cross. God himself didn't need Moses, did he? God could have just said, okay, let's cross. Um, pillar of fire, just zoom across. People of God, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Fire, all right. He could have done that. But God chose to use Moses as his instruments, as his mediator. First Corinthians chapter 10 picks up on that and says that it's not that, that Moses himself was a picture of the great mediator Jesus. That Jesus is the one who saved us from our enemies, saved us from sin, saved us from death. That enabled us to cross from death unto life. That enabled us to have a new purpose and a new, uh, a new reason to, to live. To see that God himself is preparing the people of Israel to take the land that was promised unto them. We ourselves as God's people, 
when we look at the story and the miraculousness of, of where the, the Israelites were and where they're going, we ourselves as Christians, we, we see the same thing. Our two baptisms that we had today, they have crossed from death to life. They have crossed from slavery to freedom. They've crossed from being enemies to becoming children of God. They have crossed a threshold where there's no looking back. Almost 500 years, their people were enslaved. And now they have a new chance in life. In Christ Jesus, all of you who know God, you have crossed over from death to life. Jesus is the mediator who has mediated this. It is his death and his resurrection that allows you to live this life of freedom on this side. Be joyful in what God has done. Be joyful in what he is doing in your life. Don't say, let's go back to Egypt. Don't say, let's go back to our old ways. But even if you do, God is waiting to pull you back. But make it easier on yourself. And bring God glory as you walk faithfully with him. Praise be to the Lord for who he is and what he has done. We pray that this church, let Christ shine. Let him shine. Let us live as people who have crossed from death unto life. And let us show the world that being children of God is far better than being slaves to this world. Let us pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy in all things. Oh Lord, what a day today has been. What a blessing to gather together as this people. What a blessing it is to have brothers and sisters in Christ. What a blessing it is that we can talk about God and not be afraid that people are looking at us or judging us. But we can say to each other, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is life. And we can say to each other, I'm struggling with my faith, I'm struggling with my, in my time. And that we can still say to one another, lovingly, understandingly, that Jesus is present and his love his, his love indeed is what heals his love indeed is what compels us to love one another as well so we thank you we praise you in Jesus name we pray amen <laughs>